Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. Today's all about Nick Hart. Nick Hart is the executive head teacher of Courthouse Junior School in Berkshire and the organiser of Research Ed Parks, uh, which was on May 2022. Um, he runs an influential blog, this is myclassroom.wordpress.com. He's also a visiting fellow of Ambition Institute, where I believe, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but he um, is involved in the NPQH as well. Nick, are you there? I am. Evening, Tom. Um, how are you? How's your week been so far? Uh, it's been okay so far. It's uh, the the term is racing on. I can't believe we're near the end of November, but um, this uh, we're coming to a really fun time of the year. Yes, indeed. Um, so um, before we get into impact, which is why you're here, um, your book published by Bloomsbury Education, impact, and your um, five part framework um, for uh, making a difference in schools. Um, just tell listeners who you are okay uh so uh i'm nick i'm an executive head teacher of two schools in maidenhead in berkshire one infant school and one junior school uh we um about 600 children we have about 600 children uh and it's it's a brilliant job um on top of that i um write um, a blog i work with ambition to do uh, mpqh facilitation running some of the conferences and some of the clinics um and uh yeah i suppose i think that's that pretty much covers it Mm -hmm. um so let's talk about you're here to talk about impact um your practical framework for improving academic and pastoral outcomes for peoples helping them to thrive and succeed um why did you write the book well um as a few years ago i think it's during in the middle of the pandemic, I was was writing and I was putting some ideas down in in a blog, um, and uh, I'd actually had a couple of different um, book proposals with different publisher that I that I'd requested before this. It was kind of kind of uh, it was a little bit unclear to me how people ended up writing books, um, so I ended up submitting some proposals to a number of different publishers. Uh, but this particular one came through because I'd written a blog post about. Uh, about impact and what I thought leaders need to know. And Bloomsbury got in touch one day and asked if I'd like to turn it into a into a book, turn the blog post into a book. Uh, and so I spent the next six, seven, eight months uh, fleshing it out, uh, perfecting it. And the result is something that I'm really proud of and really pleased to have uh, kind of put together. Fantastic. So apart from obviously giving you, accepting your sort of idea, what support of Bloomsbury give you throughout the entire process? I was brilliant. Um, so uh, I had a, a couple of different people that I was in contact with. Uh, so they, they would um, give me some feedback on some of the drafts. Uh, they would uh, draw up some diagrams and, and images of, of what I was trying to explain and kind of ask for my feedback on them. Um, and uh, and, and, even, and even after the, the writing process, it's uh, they're always looking for uh, ways in which the the ideas can be put out there a little bit wider and to uh, and to share the message a little bit i mean it's uh, bloomsbury are really good to work with mm-hmm. yeah that sounds very good um and so just talk us through the writing process then so 
how how long did it take from sort of putting I don't know I suppose fingers to keyboard these days rather than pen, yeah. uh, from there to sort of getting a draft towards getting something which was able to be published on the eighteenth of August I believe which was geez, a level results day. Um, so, how, so how so how long did that process take, and sort of what what were the big hurdles, obstacles in the way? I think um, it was probably about a year from starting it to it being published, and by starting it, I mean actually starting to write. So it's longer than a year um, if you include the kind of the the initial contact, the sub- submission of the the idea, and and that kind of thing, and um, uh, it was a summer holiday project really. So the vast majority the the bulk of what i what i wrote was uh the summer holiday of 2021 i think so i'd i'd write a lot um and i learned uh, so one of the most interesting things about this is that the the reason i write the reason i write blog posts the reason for books is is so that i can clarify what i think um and therefore be better at the job i think that's the for me that's the biggest reason of for for writing anything because i have to it helps me to clarify ideas to an extent which I can use it in the day job. And um, I think the, one of the most interesting uh, things I found about writing was that you're always kind of searching for the clearest, most succinct or the perfect way of saying something. And people always talk about things like writer's block. Um, and so I did a lot of reading about how to write as well, which is really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I that I learned and I do now is ju- is just just write just type anything whatever comes into into mind and then it's much easier to kind of redraft and edit than it is to sit in front of a screen pondering over the perfect way of putting something um it's much easier to work with an initial draft I mean I, I think I've got s- several I mean scores of drafts on my on my iPad of, the, of different versions of things, but but it, that process is what is what's valuable. It's taking an idea, saying in a clearer way, or linking it to a different idea, or or refining what it is that that, that the message that I want to portray. That's the really useful thing in all of it, and that's really helped me to clarify what I think about a number of things uh, in school leadership. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of that. that response or reminds me a lot about Austin's Butterfly and the epic of excellence from Ron Berger in that sense about starting with something quite rough and then just refining it so it becomes a finished product um, so yeah real good inspiration there for anybody who um, is looking to write their own book and so it was published in August it's been out for three months or so now um, what have you made of the initial section? I mean it, it, it's, it's hard to tell like I mean people kind of contact on twitter and say they're enjoying it and people that i know in real life as well say say they say they find it useful but it is really really hard to know for a little bit i was a i was obsessed with um uh with the amazon analytics and because uh uh, one of the weird things is that it's really hard to find out how many have been sold um and amazon do this thing where they they kind of take sales and they they give you a give you a rank that gives you an idea and so you, you get a bit kind of self-obsessed and check check Amazon and see where it is uh, on on various different charts. But um, I, I, I say um, the feedback has been interesting from from most, um, and uh, you and if people have found it useful, that that's really good. But um, for me, one of the main reasons writing it was for myself. There, I mean, there, there was also a, a couple. Of, I think there was one example on social media where um, there was. 
uh, maybe a not a positive review of it. And I, and and that that that's that's fair. And I think um, that what I've written here is a, a a way of thinking about school leadership. And I'm not proposing that this is the way or the best way. It's just a way. Everyone who writes, everyone who comes up with models for how things work is trying to make their reality uh, concrete for other people. And my reality of school leadership is completely different to somebody else's. There is no one unifying model of school leadership. This is There are lots around uh, uh, in, kind of in education. And our job as uh, discerning leaders is to look at different models, to assimilate the things we like about them into our own understanding and to reject uh, other bits um, that, that we don't agree with. And so I'm definitely not claiming this to be a definitive model of school leadership, but um, if it helps anyone to refine their own thinking, then that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, if anybody had a definitive model of school leadership already, then nobody would be writing any more books about it. We'd all be doing it. So exactly. there's never a definitive model of anything. Um, your, your background, Nick, is primary. Yes. And um, one of the things which one of the things which I like about the book is I think it's pretty applicable not just to primary but to secondary schools and to all three schools and models of leadership. But do we can't because you talk a lot in your book and we're going to come on to this about impact domains and the importance of domain specific knowledge when it comes to sort of having an impact in school leadership as a middle leader or a senior leader. What do you consider to be sort of the biggest differences between leadership in a primary setting compared to leadership in a secondary setting that's a really hard question to ask because um i obviously nearly all of my experiences in a primary setting so i have a very small frame of reference for secondary education but um having worked with um a local secondary school when they were being founded and it is an independent uh school that was that was founded a couple of years ago um and uh, now joining a secondary school as a governor uh, near where I live. Um, I think that the the reason for choosing these domains was was that, that they are applicable across um, ac- across different age ranges and across different phases and types of school. But that's that, that feels quite generic. And, uh, and I think school leadership is anything but generic. And what this model provides, I think, is a way of thinking that can be combined with the specific knowledge that leaders will have based on their unique circumstances, whether that is a secondary school, a primary school, an independent school, um, a, a, a school abroad. The, the, what this framework gives is a kind of, I think, is several anchoring concepts in which to organise what leaders might bring to the table themselves in terms of their their foot there that the knowledge they have of, of their schools so i hope it, it i mean it was written it was it was challenged by the by the publishers to make sure it was applicable to uh to, to leaders in different domains and and i think that what i've tried to do is strike a balance between the the generalizations of the five impact domains but give examples of primary uh, leadership mm-hmm, indeed well so when we look at your example scenarios for example that you use in the book um, you've got an example of a middle leader who we track throughout the entire book and then um, a senior leader who we um, track throughout the whole book. And one of whom is looking at the fluency of calculation for the least advantage mm. in, in year three and year four. And the senior leader who's improving reading attainment in key stage two, where phonological um, knowledge and awareness is not 
it's not a barrier. Um, was, so was it a very deliberate decision for you to choose those example scenarios from a key stage two perspective or did you sort of grapple with looking at a range of other examples um so uh, the, the re a reason for the for the reading one is uh is, is experience that so, so many school leaders uh, are grappling with this idea at the moment i mean early reading in reception and key stage one has uh, been very much systemized over the last few years with the DfE's expectation that schools have a uh, a validated phonics program and so there's the systems and the structures in place for early reading in in most schools now whether you agree with them or not or whether they're applied well or not there are that there's a lot of uh, work done to to build the collective understanding of the teaching of early reading but one of the things that, that lots of leaders I speak to um, find difficult is when children can actually read when they know their sounds and they're fluent in reading, um, how they still continue to get better. And that's typically across key stage two, where um, it's not enough, in my opinion, to do, say, uh, the old fashioned, say, guided reading, or it's not enough to give children something to read, then they answer questions about it. And so it, the example that, that I use in, throughout the book is, I think, is an antidote to that typical reading diet that key stage two children get, which is here's an extract from a book, from a book or from a, a teacher website. And here are some questions about it. Read the text, answer the questions, because I don't think that's teaching. I think that's testing. That's testing whether children can um, read and understand the text is not deliberately teaching the things that make a difference to children's reading things like background knowledge or things like um, uh, uh, deliberate instruction of vocabulary or deliberately teaching children that the underlying patterns of stories they're the things that that help to build children's uh, kind of wider general knowledge which is um, beneficial which is, which is crucial to developing their understanding of reading and when it comes to the maths example, um, that that again, it was a, uh, a a question that comes up all the time um, in my work in in our local authority. I kind of work with schools and school leaders on um, on developing what they're doing and provide some training uh, for for head teachers and other senior leaders. And this this comes up a lot. And so what I wanted to do was kind of give some examples that felt felt relevant at the time for what a lot of leaders were paying attention to. Mm. Um, yeah, no, fascinating. I mean, the question about how we improve reading attainment is a whole other show, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite a vast um, domain, certainly. And somebody at the moment midway through a um, and one of the new NPQLs um, and leading a literacy strategy at the moment. Um, it's um, yeah, it, it, it's very vast. It's very broad, and um, certainly, look, reading reading impact gave me lots of really good ideas in terms of sort of those leadership behaviours in terms of driving change. Mm. Um, so yeah, but yeah, reading attainment and improving that is oh, it's a whole other show. I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, some people will be reading looking at this show and looking at impact and they might not be a middle leader yet they might be aspiring to become a middle leader and they may have some areas of responsibility in their current practice um, but they might not be quite fully in that sort of um, you know from a secondary perspective perhaps ahead of year or ahead mm. of um, faculty or ahead, or ahead of area or something um, what's your message to them in terms of why impact 
will help them as an aspiring middle leader? Um, if I think back to my own experience of moving from class teaching to middle leadership to senior leadership, some of some of that experience was figuring it out when you've got the job. Um, it didn't necessarily involve any particularly well thought out training or opportunities. You, you kind of end up doing the job and learning while you're doing it. And so one of the reasons that this is uh, that some of the examples there are pitched at kind of middle leadership is to try and remove the mystique around um, what it is to be a good middle leader. Sometimes um, that's invisible. Uh, and, and, and if school leaders don't have a really clear understanding of what what it means to uh, for, for, for middle leaders to uh, try and influence what happens in school with an ultimate aim of improving outcomes for children without that um, that model in their heads of how you might go about that it can it can be left to the kind of middle leaders own devices or or maybe just looking for someone else in the school to emulate or to mimic in order to to kind of find the way and if you work in a school where there's really good middle leaders you've got really good models to follow that's great if you work in a school with really good senior leaders then you've got models to follow which is great and um but but some people work in schools where middle and senior leadership isn't a good model to follow and so therefore i think that um, providing a framework or a way of thinking uh, and an example that follows through and and takes takes uh read on a journey of what a, a middle leader might do in that situation i think can be a useful way of making what is sometimes invisible more concrete um and if, if we've got any uh, aspiring middle leaders just like anyone learns anything you know you need to see a uh, a complete a worked example in order to understand what's expected just like we do with children we need to sh show them a complete version and the steps along the way the same thing applies for anybody learning anything and and in this case uh, middle leaders learning how to lead um, a, a, a small area in school um yeah re no really interesting um so just touching on something you said how how can how does somebody know that the middle leaders in their setting are not as effective models to follow as they could be somebody who's aspiring to that level well i think that's a, that's another massive question that could be another radio show so um how does a leader know that that there are good models to follow so i, I, I like anything um a, a school leader needs to have a good idea in their head of what good looks like about what uh, what effective middle leaders do and for me i think effective middle leaders let's say we've got a subject let's say we're talking subject leaders really good subject leaders know their subject inside out the very first thing that i expect of a, a subject leader is to make sure that they know their curriculum inside out um it reminds me of a a, a story of when i first started at uh, courthouse and a number of years ago and there was a lot of work that needed doing in um, in every subject. And we had newly appointed middle leaders, TLR post holders for reading, for writing, for maths particularly, who, um, who whose job it was to contribute to raising the standards in those subjects. But when, you're, when you first take on a role like that as a 
reading, writing or math subject leader. It can be really tempting to jump straight in the deep end to uh, to get your clipboard out and to go and look around classrooms and to, to make past judgment and to give feedback on how things are happening. But the way we worked back then was that uh, because these leaders were were new to role, were, were stepping up for the first time into middle leadership, we needed to make sure that they were credible, that they were credible sources of advice. And so the very first thing that I asked those subject subject leaders to do was um, forget everything else except just make sure that you know the subject you know your curriculum inside out. What does year three learn in what order? What does year four learn and in what order? What does year five and year six learn and in what order? What um, are the specific misconceptions that might come up in um, in, the, in the common topics? Uh, what exactly does good teaching look like in in each subject? And we spent a lot of time um, with those uh, with those subject leaders individually to build their own knowledge, read about the subject, join the subject associations, go and see other schools where uh, where, where a subject is maybe more established. And and for a long time, for a few months even, their their job was just to build their knowledge to become an expert in that subject as quickly as possible, because. They, I told them that there's going to come a time where you're going to have to advise colleagues and you can't advise from a position of uh, uh, ignorance. The expertise is necessary for advising colleagues and helping colleagues and uh, to, to, to develop their teaching. And so that was the very first step. The next bit was all about being helpful, being supportive. Nobody wants a brand new middle leader to be wandering around their, uh, around their classroom uh, and uh, and making judgments on how things are going. So so the next remit is once you once you know your subject really really well, we need to find ways of helping everybody. Uh, we can we signpost people to uh, particular strategies. Can you invite people into your classroom to show what great teaching looks like? Um, so we did very much a, a supportive rather than a supportive um, movement before there was any kind of quality assurance or or learning walk or lesson observation because people needed to develop credibility in the eyes of their colleagues before they were put in a position of needing to give other colleagues feedback on, uh, on how to improve what they were doing mm. no I, I quite like what you said where you said you can't advise from a position of ignorance um that's that's quite that's quite a good quote there I quite like that. Um, and also yeah you mentioned something which is what i gather to be one of the ongoing themes of impact which is this idea of not rushing in to make snap judgments and actually mm. building your knowledge and building your domain specific knowledge and your mental models before you actually um, start to move into evaluation um, of the particular domains now i'm going to delve in now to the um, impact domains that you identify for five but before we do that um, I just want to bring you some lovely news from one of our sponsors. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatsbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. The impact domains. Um, you've got five. You've chosen climate systems and processes colleagues knowledge colleagues behaviors outcomes for children now 
is a framework. It's not a Bible. Um, and w- was it difficult to come up with these five particular domains or had you had a very clear idea of this is roughly where you were going for an organisational framework? Um, I think it was a combination of thinking over several years. Um, and so I remember uh, a number of years ago, I think I was in charge of People Premium somewhere uh, and and I had to write a uh, an impact statement. The head wanted me to write an impact statement for kind of the difference that we'd made. And, and I s- sat down to write and I, th- and, and I thought, OK, well, making a difference is children learning more. So I can I can I can gather information about how what children have learned. But but then, then I was thinking, what, what, what if what if that hasn't happened yet? What if that's not that that, that progress isn't? enough yet and and therefore kind of it ended it started off as a really short impact report because for some children uh, it takes uh, a lot longer to see kind of an improvement in their outcomes than it does for others so then then i thought okay well there must be some other prerequisite improvements that need to happen before those outcomes for children are seen and uh, i started gathering ideas about okay well what 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 is it so children can't learn more unless unless the, the adults do something better unless they they do something that they weren't doing before or they're more efficient with what they're doing before um or they're more responsive in what they what they do so that that, that that's where the, the the colleagues behavior came from and then I, then i got to thinking well how how do they ch- how do they change what is necessary for people to change their behavior and that's where the the colleagues knowledge came in and so i'd started off with this um this really simple model of how you make a difference in school which is first of all the adults need to develop their expertise develop their knowledge whether it's subject knowledge or whether it's uh, knowledge of children whatever um, and then that will enable them to kind of change their actions or improve their actions and those improved actions hopefully will end up in children uh, learning more so I started off with this rather simple linear model of uh, of how how we might kind of dem- make a difference in schools, uh, and then added uh, so then because we're talking about individual individuals, I thought, well, okay, so but, but school is more than individual adults, and maybe you can have an impact by creating a system that wasn't there before, making something systematic that was patchy before. So that's where the systems and processes bit came in. And then, um, that 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 considered that there must be there must be more to it than that. There must be more. What about what about the adults and how they feel? And uh, because I remember at the time, there was a few people unhappy with working in the school. A few people wanted to move on. A few people were, were happy, and it intrigued me as to why why some were really happy with their jobs and motivated, and some weren't. And so, uh, I then thought, okay, there, there must surely I, we can make a difference to how people feel at work as well. And so that kind of ended up as part of it. And I, uh, the original model then had this linear sequence of if you teach, uh, if, you, if you develop adults and they know more, that's great. That's a first layer of impact. And then they might do something different, which is great. That's a second layer of impact. Uh, but, and if enough people do that, then that becomes systematic, which is great. That's a third layer of impact. And if they're really feeling really successful then the climate can change and then ultimately the the outcomes of children change but 
that I that I don't I realized kind of a little while later that 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 school isn't that simple school doesn't have a simple cause and effect there's not like a chain reaction that I described there that chain reaction was uh, not representative of reality and I came across lots of people writing about complexity in schools um, and then kind of changed the model around a little bit to to demonstrate that each of those domains influences the other in many different ways but i think we'll come on to complexity a little, a little later yeah absolutely it, it does it does seem to me that um you know changing you know tra- driving changing schools and school leadership it's much easier said than done and you you know it's a very it's a very clear model here and um it's very clear really that climate comes first and that climate is one that is driving all of the other domains would i be right in saying that yeah, do you know what? When um, it's interesting you say that because uh, when I submitted the draft to Bloomsbury, um, the order of the chapters was different. The order of the chapters I, I put, I'd put, um, I think I put outcomes to children first because that was the ultimate difference that we're trying to make. Um, and some of the feedback I got from uh, some people that read the early drafts and the publishers, um, what was overwhelming in that climate should be first. And um, I took that on board, and and, and I think uh it was a it's a worthy first chapter because um it it kind of under it, it is it, it, this was the impact domain that made me think yes it's not a direct it's not a simple cause and effect relationship because um all of the domains influence how people feel and how people feel influences all the other domains and so that yeah that was a huge reason for uh kind of starting the book with uh this idea about making a difference to the climate in the school because i think it, particularly at a time where workload every, everyone re- reports high workload and low well-being and stress and and that kind of thing i think it's one of the things that leaders need to pay attention to um first first and foremost yeah um yeah no re- really clear there um and it's in- interesting that you put the outcomes first um i from my reading of a book ultimately um, outcomes coming last is was probably the wisest thing to do because before <laughs> impact domains that you do before ultimately you know help drive the outcomes mm. and certainly that sort of newer organisation with the outcomes coming last was that at all influenced by Ofsted and the EIF and intent implementation and impact at the end in terms of student outcomes. No, no, nothing to do with Ofsted and that kind of thing. I think it's it's important for leaders to to know in as much detail the standards that we're held to. Um, it's important to know the the framework that uh, of inspection because it's for, for for many school leaders it's make or break for careers. You have to you have to know it inside out because this is how we're judged. But certainly, certainly, I don't think um, that framework should drive any other aspect of school and it's uh, certainly not a um a, a kind of an influence on the order of the chapters here um and just like it shouldn't be an influence on kind of school improvement generally you that teachers need a a better mental model of how to improve schools than simply meeting the good criteria and the Ofsted framework it's helpful it really is can be helpful if we think about it in the right way but if if the Ofsted framework and uh, everything else is the sole driver of how we think about school improvement, then uh, our schools are going to be poorer for it. 
Mm-hmm. Now, before we move on, we're going to have a look at V5 impact domains in greater detail, and we're going to look at um, what they are, why they matter, how they can be evaluated, how they interact with one another, and how leaders can build knowledge of them. Before we do that, we do have a question which is pinned to the top of the space. Remember, of course, Teachers Talk Radio is interactive. If Nick says something that you agree with, you've got emojis down the bottom. There's also a thumbs down one, which I hope we're not going to be using <laughs> as well. And of course, you can tweet along in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. There is a speech bubble. So any questions you have for Nick, um, you can ask there. If you're really brave and please feel brave, you can request to speak and ask Nick a question directly as well. Um, this question is from Josh. Josh is a head of history. Um, and it's about what you were talking about in terms of nobody wants a brand new middle leader to be wandering around a classroom, making judgments on how things are going and they need to develop the credibility first. Josh's question is, how does a middle leader develop this credibility? And how does a middle leader then get to know their department? Um, what would you say to Josh? Uh, first, hi, Josh. Thanks for the question. Um, I would say that in order to develop credibility, we need to understand the nature of expertise. So people will find experts credible. They'll, they'll trust experts. So the question is really about how, what what is expertise in middle leadership and then how do we go about it and um this is something that uh kind of has come up in, in various bits that peps mccree has recently uh been writing some of his epic threads about this kind of thing and expertise at its at its root is knowledge um we can't uh increase our performance we can't be more credible without knowing an incredible amount of uh about the thing that we're meant to be leading so if um for example a history leader they they need to know inside out the curriculum from the youngest child to the oldest child they need to know what it is that has been chosen in terms of curriculum uh choices curriculum content they need to know the order that uh the curriculum has, has been sequenced in and why they need to um know what r- really good history teaching looks like and um that doesn't that so- sometimes that comes from being in the right environment and sometimes it comes from having to develop that externally through reading or watching or visiting schools and everything else and i think that um for th- that the very first step is in in credibility is knowing the subject inside out uh and only there and and then that that next step the next step is uh, the the approach to what middle leadership is. If uh, a new middle leader uh, has a model to follow, that leaders make judgments, that leaders uh, are um, kind of or judgmental, or if they are unfair, or or if they they have biases or anything else, then then that kind of skews what they think middle leadership is. And so that after developing expertise it's it's about setting yourself up to support other people can you share practice can you get people into your classroom to see people will only find you credible if they can see you doing expert performance and for a middle leader for a history leader for example that is being a really good history teacher um and so um when there's that base level of credibility in terms of teaching then people are going to be far more receptive to suggestions and tweaks and feedback about how to improve and how to improve teaching and then that bit about how can a middle leader get to know their department um that 
there's a, a there's loads of kind of discourse around quality assurance and what it looks like um, now any anybody walking into somebody else's classroom just by being there changes the dynamics so we have to accept that uh, whether a middle leader or a head teacher or anything in between that what we see when we watch lessons or walk the school is probably not the exact accurate truth of what normally happens because whether we whether we aim to or not we change people's behavior when we when we're in the room with them children might behave slightly differently or adults might do something differently than they normally would and so yes it's important to walk the school and to see what we notice but one of the ways to i think one of the most important ways to get to know the department is through conversation um through talking about what it is that people are doing, what their understanding is of the history curriculum, what their understanding is of um, great history teaching. It's it, one, one of those things about school improvement and culture change is that um, in order for any of it to, to be successful, there has to be alignment of beliefs and values and uh, underlying assumptions about what great teaching is, what great history teaching is, what great uh, what a great history department looks like and so uh, a huge part of getting to know the department is um, making sure that there are lots and lots of conversations with people to try and align beliefs find out what they believe find out what they think so that when we do see things in action we can frame it in that context and not just judge it from our own natural biases mm-hmm. oh, Tom the very comprehensive there and certainly we're going to touch on a lot of the issues about developing that expertise and knowing your department um, when we look at colleagues knowledge and colleagues behaviors as well um, if we but we're going to delve into the five um, impact domains so we're going to start of course with climate and one of the things which i picked up when reading this section about climate was the focus here on autonomy in schools and you divided autonomy into four sections autonomy of past autonomy of time autonomy of technique and autonomy of team um why is autonomy so important in creating climate in schools well this comes from um dan pink's work on motivation and uh, and this is not education based but it's um uh, i think from various domains the world of business that um or or that autonomy is a driver of motivation. If we want people to be motivated, they have to have, um, a fi- they have to feel like they have autonomy, and that's a really important distinction because it's not the autonomy that they have; it's the autonomy that they perceive, um, and that is really tricky. But I think schools are uh, very different places to, um, to to the to the business world that where this comes from, and I think. There, there's a there's a continuum for leaders to consider with autonomy um, with autonomy full autonomy of teachers choosing exactly what they do how they do it when they do it at one end of the continuum and at the other end is standardization where they don't really get to choose anything and for school leaders it's about figuring out for everything that teachers do or or or, or those who work in schools do whereabouts on that continuum is appropriate and so you wouldn't want autonomy over exiting the building for a fire drill. You have to have a standardized system for that to keep people safe. You wouldn't want autonomy over safeguarding practices because we have systems in place so that children don't slip through the net. You wouldn't want autonomy over um, 
checking that children are here in the morning by completing the register. We need a standardized system for that across all the classes so that we don't miss important things. So there are elements of that the school the school day and teachers' responsibilities that require standardization, but there are also elements that require autonomy and I mean, some people and, and people are different. Some people want more autonomy. Some people just want to be told what to do. It's that we have to, as leaders, understand what it is that people need in order to do their jobs really well and then see if we can find ways of solving that problem. It might be that some teachers, and this is a really common one that comes up a lot in a lot of schools and leaders that I talk to, where this, this move towards a more carefully designed curriculum has ended up with some teachers feeling they don't have any control over the content of what they teach. Whereas for many years, they may have chosen for themselves what they teach in, in their subject or in a unit of work. But you, you, you could argue that you can't have a coherent curriculum across key stages if adults, if teachers are choosing subject content themselves. There has to be um, an element of um, alignment or standardization to a certain extent with, with curriculum choices so that there's a coherent um, uh, co there's a coherent thread through any subject curriculum um, but then equally some some teachers are quite happy to be given right here's a medium term plan here is a sequence of lessons here are the resources and they're they're quite happy to spend their time on figuring out the best way of teaching that content uh, which frees up some of that time that that we know teachers don't have because of high workload um, back to that first example of a teacher that that wants autonomy over what they choose that I think one of the best ways to harness that is to get them involved in curriculum decisions, not just for their class or their year group, but for the whole school. If they're really interested in curriculum design, harness that interest for the whole thing and not just one small part of it. I think autonomy is a, a really complex kind of uh, uh, domain in which we need to think carefully about everything that we ask teachers to do and balance autonomy with workload um, and finding different opportunities to uh, kind of create autonomy, autonomy um, in the school day uh, for those that really need it. Yes, no, it's sort of that, that, that balance between workload and autonomy, particularly within the um, curriculum, which is, um, you know, so it's a big issue at the moment in terms mm. of how hard teachers are working and, you know, are they working smart on most important things? Um, now, one of the things that you touched on a bit earlier is about finding out about climate as a school leader, as a senior mm. leader in particular, because the moment a senior leader steps inside a classroom, the behaviour changes. So how can senior leaders find out about school climate, about the sort of norms of, be of behaving and of being inside a school if the moment they step inside a, a classroom, that will change you. So what can leaders actually do? Um, so, I mean, there's there's a couple of options. And, and one of the one of the pre answers previously was to have lots of conversations with with people at different times about different things to to find out how they're feeling about a particular problem. And that's I think that's one of the one of the things that we don't get right in terms of, say, uh, staff surveys often the model for staff surveys is once a year you ask them about every single thing uh, and depending on the time of year and what they've just been doing you might get different answers for, for for different questions but 
I don't, the climate is too big to inquire into in its entirety. It's far more useful to to try and find out how people feel about a specific thing that we're focusing on. So if in I mean in the book there's examples of reading, um, the, the of uh, reading at Key Stage Two where children can read, like technically read fairly well, but the um, the, the the comprehension needs work. And so one of the ways of finding out about climate is to is to ask. Um, how people feel about teaching reading in key stage two what kind how motivated uh, does it feel to be uh, to be um, teaching key, reading in key in key stage two so, so it's about um, I, I think to, to make it manageable it's about asking the right questions uh, and noticing the right things noticing body language noticing interactions with uh, uh, bet- between colleagues noticing what uh, uh, how how um, how people behave in classrooms because that can betray how they feel about what they're doing. Body language, for example, all these things give us an indication on how people feel. But um, as you said at the beginning, we we change the dynamic just by being there, and so we have to treat what we see and what we hear as a hunch that needs testing out further, rather than that absolute truth. Um, you mentioned school surveys there and how they may not be the most valid method of evaluating climate in a school. Um, but were a school to use school surveys as part of their methods of mm. evaluating climate, should those school surveys be anonymous or should responses have a name attached to them? That's a good question. I think that anonymous is the norm, isn't it? Where the idea is that people can answer freely um, without fear of repercussion, if you like. But for me, if something comes up in an anonymous survey that you didn't already know about or you didn't have an inkling about that shows a kind of a lack of awareness about what's going on in the school, um, if if staff feel that an anonymous survey is the only way that they can share how they feel, then there's obviously not enough psychological safety. There's obviously not enough trust um, in in the school because those things. If 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 there are things that leaders need to hear, and an anonymous survey is the only way of doing that. That for me, that kind of tells a story of um, a poor climate where there's not enough trust and psychological safety. But um, it's whether it's kind of named or anonymous i think it's only one part of the picture i think the best school leaders have lots of conversations with lots of people and they build up a picture of how it feels to be um in the school or in the team or teaching this particular subject that an anonymous survey might just confirm or or reject or reject or uh, and and i think we need to be really careful with with surveys because they are not the only way of finding about the climate in fact it is there's, there are problems with it. I mean, what if you don't get full response rates? What if you only get 20% uh, respondents? It's, it's only a small part of the overall picture that we need to, to consider. Yeah, definitely. And I think the point about triangulation is really key there in terms of having multiple methods in terms of finding out. We have actually just um, put out a poll about whether school surveys should be anonymous. Um, I might try and um, report back on that one in about 
time. Lucy, if you could try pinning it into the space, that would be absolutely grand. And um, get voting, everybody, because um, it's a really interesting question. Again, I agree with so much of what you said there about the fact that if you have to have an anonymous survey in order to gauge staff and feelings about something, then the client in the school probably isn't, you know, the, the club probably isn't right, but people don't feel confident enough in, you know, saying something which may go slightly against the grain, but, um, you know, feelings that they have to hide behind anonymity. Mm. So, yeah, no, I think that's a pretty key thing then. So once leaders find out about climate in the school, once they've built their knowledge of that in order to sort of guide the direction of travel, what should they be doing next? What are, what are the next steps? So with, with anything, it's, um, uh, there's no point gathering information unless we act on it. And so um, the, the, the acting on how people are feeling about a particular thing, uh, essentially what, what I'm advocating here is that we try and influence all the other impact domains. If we know that, um, uh, that kind of teachers are less enthusiastic about teaching phonics, for example, um, and that then, that the, the the premise of of this book is to to harness the power of the other impact domains to try and influence th that climate because um if i mean it's certainly desirable for a climate to be positive and if it's in any way not then we need to try and affect what's happening in uh, across the school so that it can in turn affect the climate and what i'm proposing here is that all the other impact domains affect the climate so if we can build adults knowledge if we can align their beliefs if we can uh, kind of help them to become better teachers in what in how they behave and what they do day by day if if we can get them to be, uh, to be part of a bigger system and that children are doing better then my argument here is that that a combination of all of those things will contribute to a, a better climate and um and part of that is uh, that specific for climate is how how leaders how leaders lead, how they go about the daily work. And part of that has to be a huge attention to improving psychological safety, improving trust, because without those two things, improvement is probably almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, no, um, that's sort of an overview on climate. Obviously, hmm. if you want to find out more about what Nick has to say about climate, um, then his book is available to buy um, from Bloomsbury website itself. Um, it's actually saving 30%, saving £4.50 at £10.49. Um, and you can buy it from other all good bookshops, I'm sure. Um, our next impact domain that you write about in is systems and processes. And these are split into five components. Behaviour, which we've discussed um, already to an extent. Professional development, again, which we've discussed. Curriculum, which we've discussed. Assessment and quality assurance as well. Uh, there was something you wrote about in the behaviour section. You talked about this concept of the equality of adult authority. Um, and you spoke much in the book how sometimes senior leaders can sort of insert themselves into a situation involving a student teacher in order to try and diffuse the situation. In doing so, they may help to diffuse the situation, but... Um, at the same time, they are to an extent undermining that teacher's authority. Could you elaborate on that at all for us? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, I think Tom Bennett spoke about this or wrote about this originally a, a while ago, where he talked about um, how uh, any school is actually at least two different schools. You've got the school that the experienced senior staff work in, 
and you've got the school that the inexperienced or the perceived lower status staff work in and often children with who present the most challenging behavior present that for those they perceive to be of lower status uh, and often that is teaching assistants lunchtime controllers supply teachers um and if if we're going to have a a truly calm and purposeful environment in the school then the children need to see the adults as one with the same expectations with the same um authority with the same care with the same uh love with the same expectation of how they how they behave and 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 sometimes we undermine it by um following a, a thread such as this so for example a, a teaching assistant comes and says uh comes off the playground and said at break time i asked the child to to stop doing something and they ran away or they they carried on doing it um that's not an uncommon thing to happen and a well-meaning senior leader might go and get that child and tell them off and tell them to listen to uh to the teaching assistant on a playground but that doesn't do anything to help the child see that the teaching assistant has status um, and so one of the things that, uh, that, that I advocate is that um, there's, a, there's a good point for some coaching there at that point. Uh, so uh, let's say that in that same example, a, a child uh, has run away from a teaching assistant and not done what they've been asked. Um, uh, the teaching assistant and I, for example, would, would, would talk through kind of what, might, what would be a good thing to do next. And... Um, if I jump in and I talk to the child, I completely undermine that teaching assistant. So I, what I want in this situation is a teaching assistant to lead the conversation. Together, we'd, we'd go and find that child. Uh, but beforehand, we'd have, I'd have talked the teaching assistant through what they're going to say. They're going to reset their expectations. They're going to, to uh, make it clear that it's not okay to kind of ignore or run away. Uh, and all the while, it's the teaching assistant who is having this conversation. And I'm there for moral support if you like i'm there to uh kind of be in the background and to to lend some weight to what the teaching assistant is saying but so it's not me that's saying it it's not me that's enforcing it i'm just there kind of as backup so that the teaching assistant establishes himself as a credible adult that that uh, that that should be listened to just like any other uh, adult in the school yeah, no, that's fascinating. But uh, the number of times in which, in a sense, we sort of, you know, obviously some issues need to be escalated, especially yes. um, some of those which include some of those sort of dangerous behaviours. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, no, I think establishing that equality of adult authority is very key. Um, another thing you talk about in terms of systems and processes is assessment. And assessment is such a thorny issue. It's something which the big O look um, quite carefully at in terms of the education framework as well. Um, what sort of things do leaders have to think about when it comes to effective assessment frameworks and assessment policies in their um, schools? You talked a lot, for example, in your book about the folly of, um, you know, lots of sort of intense marking strategies. Mm. Uh, so, so, so first of all, I think leaders have, need to have a very clear idea, clear idea about what good assessment is. And for, for for starters, we need to be really clear that the most useful form of assessment is formative assessment. The stuff that happens day by day, minute by minute, those the gathering information and changing what we do based on what we know. Um, and 
if we're going to um, get teachers paying attention to any form of assessment the most, it's got to be that one because that's the one that that can make a difference. Putting numbers on a spreadsheet or uh, writing feedback in a book that a child might not be able to read or act on or act on accurately, they're li- they're less efficient and less useful. Uh, assessment practices and so we have to look with fresh eyes at everything to do with assessment that we ask uh, teachers to do uh, when it comes to kind of the the, the progress tracking or the uh, or the data entry side of assessment we have to be really clear what what we're getting from uh, from these things and so it's not uncommon for for children to sit tests uh, throughout kind of the primary age range uh, standardized tests sometimes but we need to, to leaders need to understand what it is you get from that standardized tests often do not assess the taught curriculum because they can't uh, um, every school's curriculum is slightly different and so you're not going to get an assessment suite off the peg that gives you standardized scores that fits what you've actually taught them uh, and so if we're going to do standardized tests we can't pretend that it's uh, assessing what we've taught them what it does give us is a standardized score for every child that gives an indication of how those children are doing compared to other children nationally and therefore if that's what we get out of it we shouldn't ask teachers to spend ages and ages and ages photocopying marking doing question level analysis of these things when they're not the things that have been taught and so one of the th- one of the, the the standardized testing suites that we use is one that is online where there's no marking there's no data entry it's just a click of a button and that data in that information goes uh, essentially where leaders can use for governance or pattern spotting and that kind of thing. But it's not for teachers. It's not the most useful information that teachers can gather. So we don't waste their time doing it. Same with teacher assessments. So it's, it's common practice for maybe once a term for teachers to put in a spreadsheet somewhere that every child is working towards or expected or greater depth. But but what's who's that for? What's the information for? Does it involve Does it inform teaching? can we actually do it with any reliability and validity it's hard enough to do it really well with systems that are really well established like uh say uh key stage one uh moderation or key stage two writing moderation there are there are whole documents and whole training courses about assessment accuracy and moderation there which don't have which don't happen in other year groups and if it's hard enough to get year two and year six right, imagine how hard it is to get year one, year three, and year four and year five right without a huge investment in time and resource. And so we just need to be aware that that there's a trade-off with effort, workload, attention compared to what you get out of it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, lots of food for thought there. Now, of course, we've got some shout-outs to people who are here in the Twitter space tonight who have joined since I did the last shout-out. We've got Emily Follerunshow, who is here, um, the host of many a wonderful Teachers Talk radio show um, in times gone by. Woody's here. We've got Mrs. Charlie Pearson. We have Peter. We have Paul O'Brien. We have Jay Young, who is just coming, teacher of PE and head of ICT. Jess, head teacher, is here as well. We've got Jan. We've got Fiona. We've got Seb, who's still here. We've got Gigi, who is here. Fio. Um, Melody Harmer and Shay Bradbury as well. Apologies if I miss you out there. Now, of course, we couldn't be here today without one of our long-standing um, sponsors, Wibberslack Group. Wibberslack Group are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people like you to help them achieve even more. At Wibberslack, you'll be given all of the resources and support you need. 
offered a clear path to career progression and rewards with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Women's Slack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for, so why not check out www.withslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Moving on to your third impact um, impact domain, Nick, which is colleagues' knowledge. Um, now, you split colleagues' knowledge into formal knowledge and hidden knowledge, um, but there's this key thing about understanding, ensuring that teachers understand how children learn. So how can leaders support teachers that understand and comprehend how children actually learn? Um, it sounds like it's a, a silly one to kind of bring bring up because you'd expect kind of schools and people working in schools to understand the mechanisms of of our core business, which is getting children to learn things. But actually, um, it's it's only relatively recently that those the ideas of, in, about cognitive science and working memory model and cognitive load and that kind of thing have become more easily accessible. Uh, and so, I mean, first of all, leaders need to understand how how the mind works and how memory works and 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 what conditions are required for children to actually learn something the differences between learning and performance these things are uh, essential required knowledge for school leaders because if they don't understand uh, and can uh, and, and if and if they can't articulate what learning is and what learning looks like you get some of the things that uh, are still kind of a, a, a kind of around today such as like a, a focus on task completion rather than actual understanding i mean what's it's still common to see adults encouraging children to finish their work rather than understand their work and sometimes we, uh, the way that our schools are set up are that it kind of celebrates task completion instead of understanding it's you, one thing that really fascinates me is is what feedback a child gets when they've done some work if we say something along the lines of oh wow you've written so much or look you've finished your story that gives a uh, an impression that finishing is what's important or the quantity of work is what's important when in fact it's the understanding that is that is most useful understanding trumps task completion every single time uh, and so leaders have to need to have a really good idea of what it means to learn uh, is, this to... Obs- is this obsession with task completion which is still quite prevalent in um, some settings sort of this fear about you know books not looking beautiful and sort of having inter- external people coming in to look at books as part of their triangulation and looking at things which aren't necessarily complete or finished and going oh well we need to make sure they must finish that does it come from that sort of external pressure do you think i think for some it does um and for others it's it's possibly more this idea that um uh, i'm teaching wednesday's lesson today i need to finish wednesday's lesson so they're ready for thursday's lesson and then Thursday's lesson needs to be finished because they need to be ready for Friday's lesson. And they do this unit of work, so they're ready for the next unit of work. This conveyor belt of um, of tasks and lessons is is not the speed at which most children uh, need to work. Um, some children will need more time than others, and um, I think that more so than external pressure is this this kind of internal this thing we've internalised about how 
uh, year three learn this, then this, then this, then this, and year, then they go to year four, then they learn that and that and that and that, and this curriculum conveyor belt rumbles on without uh, being slowed down or adapted in any way. I think that's a bigger issue in terms of task completion before understanding, because we have this 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 need for coverage or this expectation from leaders that we have to cover the curriculum. Of course, teaching it is not the same as children learning it, and um, it's far, in my eyes, far better for children to understand the majority of what they've been taught, but they may not have been taught everything because they've not had enough time, rather than they've been exposed to everything and only have a very limited understanding of all the things they've been they've experienced. That's why children get to age 11 not understanding um, elements of maths. It's why um, there's a, a large proportion of children that get to uh, age 16 without uh, a, a fully developed understanding of what they should they should learn is because sometimes the curriculum goes too fast because we prioritize task completion over understanding is there an argument to be made and this is a certainly a very interesting question i think um, that if a student has is hasn't met the requirements of the curriculum in a particular year group that they should be held back a year Oh, I don't know rather about that. than progress on to something because obviously if our curriculum is a progression model as it mm. was, and they haven't progressed anywhere near as much as they should be in a particular year what's the point of them moving on to the next step of a progression model shouldn't they be sort of held back in that sense I, that's, that's a tough one I, I don't think so I think there are social and emotional considerations to take into account there um uh, but one of the reasons for the conveyor belt rumbling on and the prioritization of task completion over understanding is that our curriculum is too full i think before anyone talks about holding children back a year i think we need to review what it is that we're actually teaching children sometimes we massively overcomplicate and pack our curriculum with far too much content lovely activities that are brilliant fun and uh, great for children to do but maybe don't have a place in a sequence of learning and that's not to say that children shouldn't have great experiences but everything that we ask them to do should be carefully thought out and and part of curriculum leadership is to decide what not to cover because there's just too much there's just too much in the curriculum for um uh, to, to fit it all in in the working week in the in term by term in the year for it to for it to be truly learned uh, and and uh, i'd like to see a kind of a review of what's what's necessary and statutory so that we can give children a better chance of learning um what uh, that, that the, the fundamentals um but certainly i think that was a preferable uh, avenue than holding children back a year mm-hmm. uh, oh i just forgot what i was going to say oh well, that was it because it's not just a national curriculum of course but this is an issue mm-hmm. um as a secondary school teacher it's in the new spec gcses as well Mm. And I've got Emily still here, and Emily teaches head of history. I think Emily teaches Excel. I teach Excel, and the amount of content that students require to know and remember and understand is absolutely ridiculous for two-year course. We're not going to finish teaching the course until April, and you know we're building in sort of revision and retrieval practice and space practice for us. Um, but there's no chunk of time left at the end to actually revise or actually um, sort of recap from the very beginning, so to speak. So the packed curriculum is certainly something which needs to be tackled. Mm. Now, one of the other things, Nick, that you talk about in colleagues' knowledge is knowledge of the school's strategic direction. Mm. Um, how important is it for all staff to know 
what the school's strategic direction is and how they fit into that bigger picture? So uh, there's a nuance here. I mean, every school has kind of a some form of vision or mission statement or values or something. Um, but I'd argue that it's not that that teachers need to know. I think um, teachers and staff more widely need to know more at a greater level of detail what it is we're trying to do what it is that uh uh, what the problems that we're trying to solve and uh the strategies that we've chosen to tackle those problems and the active ingredients of those strategies and what what good looks like and what what um less effective looks like I, i think it's more important to 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 be have real clarity on some of the specifics on um uh, on, on what we've chosen to do and why rather than some of the airy abstractions that often come up in uh, kind of schools mission statements and value statements that's not to say values aren't important um, values when they're done well are um, kind of good ways of pointing in the right direction it's like a, a, a signpost if you like it's it tells us roughly which way to go but doesn't really explain how we get there or some of the details of the journey and the details of the journey are the, when, when I talk about purpose and strategic direction, it's it's more the the increasing granular um, detail about how we work and what we've what we've chosen to pay attention to that that I think everyone needs to have a really good understanding of. And that's where you get alignment. That's where you get kind of collective, uh, collaborative problem solving, which is beneficial for everyone. Thank you for that. We've got 20 minutes remaining and we've got two impact domains to discuss. Um, colleagues' behaviours is the fourth one in impact. Um, and you refer to a phrase which I've seen quite a few times. Um, lots of different people have referred to it about the soft bigotry of low expectation. <laughs> um, it's quite a contentious phrase um, yeah. in some quarters. So how can leaders avoid... Um, the soft bigotry of low expectations and colleagues' behaviours. So, so part of this is being really clear about what good work looks like. Sometimes, without a kind of a wider experience, teachers might not have a picture in their heads about what an appropriate standard of work looks like. And so, while schools do a lot of moderation-type activities to do with assessment, sometimes a more standardization approach could be quite useful, which is where kind of teachers get together and look at some examples of work and then they recalibrate what it is that they expect of children based on seeing other examples. That's why it's really good to have um, multiple year groups in a class. If we're, if we're about multiple classes in a year group, if we're, if our schools are big enough, because you get to see what children in other classes are producing the work they're producing. And when we see work that is of a higher standard, then it changes our expectation of what uh, what we want from from children. Um, so there's the one aspect is kind of the work that we expect from from children. But another element of that is how adults treat children. And sometimes it's uh, our expectations are shown through what we say. Uh, but often uh, adults expectations of children are shown in their behavior. So um it's human nature to have bias. It's human nature to have favorites. It's human nature to interact with some more than others. And teachers need to check that. They need to, to, to notice when they are talking to the same few children more often than others. They need to notice when they are giving some children 
uh, more uh, warmth and more positive feedback and when they're being less warm and, and less supportive to others. There's an interest, it's, but the idea here in this book is based on the, the Pygmalion effect, the study in the 60s about um, how uh, teachers' expectations of children affect how they do. Um, so uh, in, in this study, some researchers went into a school and, and told, told teachers that uh, there, were, there were children in their classes and they named them um, who, uh, based on some, some testing, uh, were, uh, were certain to bloom in the year ahead. They, they identified them as gifted uh, and in the next year something's going to click and they're absolutely going to, to thrive at school. And um, what they found was that, that teachers treated those children differently. They were warmer. They were uh, they gave better feedback. They they were uh, more supportive. Um, but the interesting thing was that, that those children were chosen at random. And um, it wasn't that they were going to bloom. They weren't identified by testing. It's just that teachers thought they were going to do better. And because they thought they were going to do better, they treated them in a different way, which resulted in them... Um, doing better now there are some criticisms of that study there's some limitations of it but it's worth thinking about if if how we act towards children particularly um to do with different protected characteristics and we negatively affect uh, some children then that's something that we need to identify and correct because uh, that's as teachers that's something that we should be aware of and and, and avoid Mm-hmm. It's yeah, no, fascinating there. And in terms of um, the points you make about cognitive behaviours, I'm looking at the survey that we sent out nearly half an hour ago. We had 150 votes. Um, 91% agree that staff survey should be anonymous. Obviously, we need to trade that with caution. And uh, Bill Wilkinson makes the very important point that at times they should and at times they shouldn't. We've had somebody else comment about how actually even when a survey is anonymous. Um, when you have questions like what phase are you in, what subject do you teach, etc., it can become very clear who is actually yeah. giving the responses. Um, once leaders have built knowledge of colleagues' behaviours, what should they do next? Uh, it's similar to kind of everything else. I mean, if we if we if we know that there is some strength uh, or some effective practice in what people do and uh, some ineffective practice, we need to take a kind of a wider view on that. We might direct um, others to uh, to see some excellent practice. We might intervene with some professional development or some coaching. Um, but uh, I think it all, it just comes down to to conversations. And one of the one of the interesting things about noticing what colleagues do is um, refraining from making absolute judgments on it because it's for, for leaders about understand understanding what what they do and so that if, if we're noticing what people are doing it should always be followed up with with kind of some exploration of why like what what is it what what do you believe or what do you know that is influencing you to do that to do those things and and so we can only ever judge based on our own standards when we see people doing something and we can't, it's, it's an unfair way to kind of see those behaviours. And so I think it needs uh, kind of further explanation of the reasons for it so that we can take a, a wider view and then decide whether there is uh, a general, a general trend towards that thing, in which case some professional development might be might be useful or some staff training or whether it's an individual thing, in which case a, a more, a tailored uh, approach might be more useful. Uh, we need to kind of 
we, if we let's say for example you we're walking the school and we see practice that we're not quite sure is uh is the most effective maybe we're just judging that on our own standards and maybe it is effective uh maybe children are learning and it's just our own preferences that are niggling us to to kind of notice something that we we're not quite right with and and that's uh, it's the same with kind of a few of the other domains where just seeing something in action doesn't necessarily mean that we take action immediately we need to try and take a, a pragmatic view about uh, the reasons why and how often and, and it does it always does this always happen or uh, what are the views that support this and, and and then we can decide what what to what to do whether that is a collective work or that's individual work it's um it's, it's a bit of a minefield <laughs> yeah absolutely Absolutely. And um, yeah, certainly some of the points you make about not rushing in too quickly are particularly important, especially in my context when certainly I spent a lot of time observing um, teachers very new to the profession and trainee teachers and actually trying to understand um, their behaviours. Um, it's, it's not a simple task. Mm-hmm. Um, your final um, impact domain, Nick, is outcomes. Now, you make it very, very clear in this chapter that it's not just statutory assessment that matters when it comes to outcomes. So, what what does matter? I mean, uh, so so academic outcomes are the most probably the most visible, but we have to understand that those academic outcomes are absolutely pre- uh, prerequisite. Uh, so, an absolute prerequisite of those is how children feel. If children feel like they belong, if children feel motivated, if they enjoy what they're doing, if they have, if they experience success, if they uh, have good friendships, if they got good relationships with adults, those are all outcomes for children that are that have to be in place for children to 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 flourish academically. And um, if we take a too too narrow a view of what outcomes for children are, then we lose all of that all the social the social and the emotional and the artistic and the and and, and the physical side of um of outcomes of children and and children are poorer result and schools are poorer as a result it's an understanding of of what children need um and uh children need an awful lot in order to to meet the demands of the school curriculum indeed and um you know you sort of that sort of more holistic and wide-ranging view very important now there's an interesting quote in this chapter from you which is um you write just because there are six half terms in a year it does not mean that there should be six rounds of assessment now in terms of sort of internal school assessment obviously it's very formative and to an extent um, summative um but why 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 basically why why is it just because there are six half terms in a year it does not mean that there should be six rounds of assessment surely some for school leaders some sort of standardized system around assessment where subjects certainly in a secondary setting are assessing at roughly the same time is a really useful framework what would your response be to that uh so, so school is littered with the wrong units of time so we measure time in uh years or terms or half terms or weeks or lessons um and that learning doesn't work like that learning doesn't there, there aren't there aren't end points so uh often we have units of work that fit with terms but but why why can't a unit of work go past a half term or over two terms why can't a unit of work be just a couple of weeks long it depends on what it is that children 
uh, that we're intending on children to learn. And I, and I think a unit of work um, should be as long as it needs to be in order for children to experience the richness of the curriculum that's been planned. Um, and yeah, it makes sense to kind of have some sort of structure across a, across a school uh, a school year. Uh, but um, it depends. If back to that assessment point, it depends what the assessment's for. Like what what information are we gathering? So some, Dylan William talks about uh, two approaches for assessment. One is uh, uh, one is where you kind of you collect the data and then you decide what you're going to do with it afterwards. And the other is you decide what you need to know and then you collect information that helps you to make a decision. And, uh, and too often we collect loads and loads of data uh, and then decide what to do with it afterwards, if anything at all, rather than figuring out what do we need, what decision do we need to make? What do we need to know about? And then collect information to, to solve, to solve that problem. Um, so it comes down to the assessment example comes down to like, what, what are you going to do with it? What Are you going to do anything useful with that information? Is it going to change what teachers do? Is it going to improve learning? And if it is great, but not, it shouldn't just be because of the way the school year is designed and has been designed for decades. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for that. Um, I've, I've got one more question, but to, in order to ask this question, I'm actually going to need Nathan to call in. So, Nathan, if you're listening, please do call in just for the last five minutes or so. Um, somewhere pinned amongst the tweets here, um, we have a tweet all about getting, it's the first one actually, about you know the fact that we are recruiting for new hosts. If you've enjoyed the conversation tonight, whether you've been listening live or listening back um, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on our website, um, we have spaces left to host. They are disappearing quite quickly. We are recruiting new hosts. Um, and But we've got a few slots left. So if you're interested in hosting on Teachers Talk Radio, then why not drop us a DM and we will send you a hosts pack. We will be joining a fantastic collegiate community, um, wonderful groups of teachers and educators, and you get to talk about things you are really passionate about. Now, Nathan, thank you for calling in at the very last moment. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. My question for Nick is the following. Um, Nathan and I occasionally co-host a Teachers Talk radio show called Staff Room 101. In Staff Room 101, we debate and we discuss um, things in education that we'd like to lock away forever and throw away the key. Um, is there a, what is the one aspect of school leadership you would like to throw into Staff Room 101? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a big question. Let's have a think. No pressure. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Hmm. I think uh, so. So one thing, something in school leadership that that needs to go. Okay, so something that I see that's um, quite common that I think kind of doesn't really have a place. It, it's kind of happened a a little bit today. Is um, being being driven by external forces for how the school is run. So you hear people say one of the most things Ofsted want to see or the trust needs to see this or whoever this external person to the school is that has that is some ephemeral influence um is if you 
who's the expert in the school? It's a school leader. The school leader should know the school inside out and be able to make decisions about what it is that the school needs to do to improve. And so if if we abdicate that responsibility and put it on an external body like the trust or the local authority or Ofsted, then I think you instantly kind of lose a bit of credibility. Um, and and what what leaders need to do is to justify their decisions on educational reasons. The minute we go managerial, the it's far less likely that there's going to be trust. It's far less likely that there's going to be um, alignment. So so I, that's a very long winded way of saying um, reliance on external bodies for direction. So, yeah, we've got external pressures on school leadership decisions. Nathan, um, is it going in? Uh, am, am I coming through okay? Because I, I, I didn't You're have my headphones in. I've been. Oh yeah. Um. No. I like. I. Uh, and you sound hundred well. I, I'm a hundred percent behind that one. Like I, I couldn't agree more. I was hoping Nick was going to put ter- ter- the term time part that he he mentioned there because as <laughs> primary primary background is the thing. You might not feel that time, but definitely in primary, you you're like live and die by the term times and it's horrible when you get to the end of six weeks and you you want to roll over but no no you know it's the end of six weeks but yeah definitely anyone who is just saying sub somebody else absolving themselves of responsibility i'm a hundred percent behind that i would put that straight in great thanks it's gone in um yeah my half term this half term is seven and a half weeks so um you know, I'm looking forward to the three, next three half terms, which are six weeks each. Nick, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. A reminder that Nick's book, Impact, a five-part framework for making a difference in schools, is available on the Bloomsbury website with a 30% discount for just £10.49. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. And enjoy your evening. Take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.